Have you ever seen a fly try to, try to get out of a spider's web? That's what I feel like, trying to get out of this mask. Uh, second time it happened to me. It happened to me in the first service as well. First of all, if you don't know who I am, I'm Pastor Wiley, and this is my last uh, week to be preaching as the interim associate pastor here at the church. And that is a good reason. There's two good reasons behind that. First, in case you didn't hear the news, Pastor Will and Pastor Christian have been voted in as the new associate pastors of the church. And the church in Ruiz is meeting regularly now, even to the point that Ben Zamora is there preaching this morning because I'm here preaching. It's just amazing to see God's grace in everything that, that is going in Ruiz. Let me just begin with a quick prayer for myself, and then we'll jump into what we're going to be seeing today. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your people. We thank you for your spirit. Father, you say that your spirit is the greatest teacher. That it's good for us that you have left and have given us the Holy Spirit. So we pray that as the word is opened up today, that your spirit would be here, would convict, would bring exhortation, would encourage I pray for your people, God, that they would hear you and respond accordingly. Give me grace, Lord. You know I'm never enough to this task, and so I just pray for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. In 1855, a Frenchman named Charles Blondin, his name actually wasn't Charles Blondin. He had a very nice French name, but the Americans couldn't pronounce it, so they called him Charles Blondin. He set out to cross Niagara Falls, that is this stretch that's between the United States and the Canadian border, that's a river, pretty strong and raging waters, and he wanted to cross it on a tightrope. This is in 1855, you can imagine. And so the rope itself was about 300, more than 300 meters in length, and anyone who fell from this would certainly in 1855 fall to their death, no doubt. Gamblers had set up tables and they were taking bets on whether he would actually be able to make it across or whether he was going to fall. So the first time he did this, over 5,000 people came to watch both on both sides added together. And to their amazement, carrying a seven meter pole, he's able to balance and he walks the 300 meters over Niagara Falls, turns around, does it backwards again, two times. Crowd cheers. He made quite a bit of money, and as the years went by, he had to make his uh, show more exciting or people wouldn't come anymore to watch him. So the next time he did the show, he decided he was going to, when he got across, what he did was he brought a table with him that was specifically made to balance. He dropped a line down to a boat that was in the water below him. He pulled up a bottle of wine, and he poured it into a glass while he's balancing on the tightrope, and he drinks the wine. He drops it back down. So the crowd cheers again. Well, that's still not enough. The next time he actually carries a stove with him, he cooks an egg on top of the tightrope and eats it. What will he do next, people were saying. The next is that he grabbed a wheelbarrow. You know what a wheelbarrow is? It's the cart that has one wheel in the front and you hold it back here and you push things in it. Well, he grabs a wheelbarrow and he decides he's going to cross. Can he cross keeping him and the wheelbarrow in balance? He goes across, sure, no problem, right? He gets across from the United States to the Canadian side. He shouts at the crowd, do you believe I can cross back across? Yes, we believe you can make it across. 
Do you believe I can carry a person with me? He says, yes, we believe you can carry a person with me. He says, who will get in the wheelbarrow? Silence. By this time, 25,000 people had come to watch. The story has a very good point to it. Believing something is not always the same as trusting in something. Believing in something is not always the same as trusting in something. The crowd claimed to believe that he could do it. But none put their life into his hands. And you can't blame them either. That would have been a foolish thing to do to get into a wheelbarrow. But this story connects to the series that we're preaching into the Christian's life in general. We're talking about divine design. So last week, Pastor Steve Fuller was here and he talked about divine design in marriage. That is men and women design in marriage. This week, the topic is divine design in creation. So I'm going to be talking from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. What does the Bible say about men and women? And the greater question is the question that Blondin asked the crowd. Will you trust God in that? Not just do you believe it, but will you trust? Are you willing to believe it enough to actually obey it and to risk in following it? I'm going to do that by asking three questions and answering them today. So this is the structure if you're an outline writer. First question is this, can we really trust Genesis 1 and 2 to base our beliefs on? Second question, what is God's divine design? Third question, can we trust that divine design? So there's a structure today, and let's begin. Can we really trust Genesis 1 and 2 to base our beliefs on? I know that in our day and time, people in university and people in schools are frequently told that the Genesis account is a creation myth for unintelligent people. For example, one popular TV show has a scene where the woman speaks to her husband. He picks up a Bible and he says, what is this? And she says, oh, honey, it's the Bible. You'll enjoy it, she says. It's like Harry Potter for dumb people, she says. And this is not uncommon. Jesus is frequently in cartoons, sometimes on the internet. Most of it is highly disrespectful of Jesus and sometimes even blasphemous. But this is the world your children will grow up in. We can't run from this. We have to know why we believe what we believe. The world of academia, the world of science today is worshipped by people. Literally worshipped. All of this is creates a powerful cultural river that is sweeping entire cultures away from the Bible, from God. And we should know where these things come from. They come from our enemy. But I want to give you a few reasons why I believe the Genesis account is trustworthy. And the first one is this. One of the most common reasons that people today mock this narrative is that they claim that it is simple and unscientific. But hear me, this narrative is a sign of God's love for all people because it is simple. When I lived and worked in the Amazon basin, I worked with Amazon indigenous people that literally took bows and arrows and shot monkeys out of trees 
and ate them. They made their homes in huts. They barely wore any clothes. And when we would go to the village, my children would handle parrots and, and monkeys and get to see these things up close. And here's the amazing thing. They didn't know what gravity was. They had never heard of bacteria before. They had no idea that E equals MC squared. But when I told them the story of Genesis 1 and 2, do you know that they could understand it? Isn't that amazing? God is so brilliant that He creates and gives us a version of creation so simple and truthful that any person from any culture at any time can understand it. And it can become a foundation for what you believe and understand. It's not bad because it's simple. It's actually brilliant by God. And this is what people don't grasp. When I told the story to that tribe, I'll never forget Taliko, one of the men. He must have been at this time around 50 years of old. And he began to cry as he heard the story. He said, I've never heard anything so beautiful. This will become my story, he said. Will it become yours? Do you trust in the word of God? I'll tell you, not only do I trust in it because it's brilliant and God has given us the perfect story to be able to share the narrative, a true story, but I trust it because Jesus Christ trusted it. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19 and verse 4, he's asked a question about divorce and he answers. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I'm not going to preach this text, but I want to point out to you three things out of this text. The first is, listen to the first line. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? This is a reference to Genesis chapter 1. And verse 27, then he goes on to say, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This is a reference to Genesis chapter two and verse 24. And then he takes these two stories from Genesis one and Genesis two. He combines them together. He takes patterns. He creates precepts based off of principles. He uses Genesis one and two to talk about how we should live today. We're going to do some of this same sort of theology today as we talk about these things. But the one thing you can't miss is that Jesus Christ went there. That was his foundation. Lastly, I think that the alternative is pretty unattractive. I don't know if you know this about me, but before I became a believer, I was an atheist. I placed my faith in ideas that left me empty. I believed that morality was a product of evolution. I thought that right and wrong were totally relative. I thought love was a chemical reaction and not something real. I thought that life had no real purpose or meaning. I was miserable. By the grace of God today, I don't believe people are so closed my hope is that if you're in this room, you'll be open to hear about God and what the Bible has to say about the world he made. God's word has been so accurate in my life. I don't know about you. It's never failed me. 
So the next question comes, not only can we trust Genesis 1 and 2, but what exactly is happening? What is God saying about men and women? I think there are two big truths that come out of Genesis 1 and 2. So I'm simplifying it quite a lot. The first truth is that men and women are similar and even equal in some ways. The second is that men and women are different and that roles can come out differently. So you're going to see both of these things in Genesis 1 and 2. So let's take a look at Genesis 1, starting in verse 26 and 27. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The very first passage in the Bible about humans does not start with their differences, but with their equality. As one pastor says, humans were created to reflect God just as the moon was created to reflect the sun. You know, the moon doesn't have any light in and of itself. When you see it, you're seeing nothing more than a reflection of the sun. That's what we are. We're the image of God, a reflection of God. And listen, men and women are the image of God. Boys and girls are the image of God. Married and single are the image of God. You know why this is important, ladies? Many ladies have this burden they carry around with them, which says, you know, if I can't get married and I cannot have children, I'm something less spiritual. Do you know that's a lie? The Bible's very clear off of the straight off from the beginning. The number one purpose in any single person's life is to be the image of God. You can do that without being married. Did you know you can be brave? You can be kind. You can be just. You can be loving. You can reflect God to the people around you. And you do that all without having to be married or having to have children. You don't become less spiritual because of those things. And don't believe that. And men, the same to you. I know men that are disabled or men that are unemployed. And you think because you can't support your parents back in your home country that you're less of a man? That you're unspiritual? Don't believe those things. You can be the very image of God. This is a beautiful truth that we should latch onto. A truth that comes into the New Testament in a little different way. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, it says this. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for all are for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's speaking of salvation and he's saying this. Listen, God doesn't pick sides like it's some sort of little kids in the park trying to decide who's going to be on the football team. Right. It's not like God says, oh, the man's better. So I pick him. You, you get the woman. That's not how this works in the Bible. Men and women are equal when it comes to their salvation. 100% stand before God. Their prayers count the same. They're seen as God under Christ as saved the same, loved the same, equal in their salvation. We go on to see in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28 another way that they're similar. Setting God blessed and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
Men and women are both charged with being joint rulers of creation. Listen to the word that's used there. They both have dominion over creation. Now, to have dominion here is to be responsible for the flourishing, listen, for the flourishing of all that is placed under your care. To have dominion is to be responsible for the flourishing of all that is placed under your care. Now, when you hear dominion, don't be confused. I'm not talking about some sort of authoritarian abuse. It's not like they were going around abusing animals, burning down the garden and, and beating each other up. That's not what's happening here. Their authority, their dominion is to cause the good of what is under them. This is very important that you grasp this. Do you know why this is important? It's important because this same authority will be given to men in marriage and it will be given to pastors in the church. And this is the truth behind it. If there's abuse, it's not God's authority. God's authority always looks for the best of those under its, its care. And this is something men and women share in common. They are to have dominion over creation. They're to serve God as rulers of the created order. So this is a very beautiful truth. And these are two ways in which men and women share similarities. But how do they share differences? These probably are some of the most uh, pieces that stand out to us are the differences. Let's take a look in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to Read in pieces, Genesis chapter 2, 15 to 25. The first thing we're going to do, we're going to read Genesis 2, 15 to 17. It says this, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, it might seem arbitrary, but stop for a moment and meditate on what is happening. Adam is formed from the dirt. He's created. He's placed into a garden. And God tells him immediately, you have two purposes. Your first purpose is to work within the garden. He has almost a priestly kind of role. God has created this beautiful place in his presence. And Adam's job is to work at it, to make it even more pretty to keep it up. And on top of that, he's to keep it. The word keep here is frequently translated in Hebrew guard. Now, it's, it's very interesting that these two kind of roles, working and guarding or keeping, are what he's given before Eve is ever on the page. She's ever even in the picture. And it becomes clear by this that when Eve comes along, she's going to help him fulfill the commands that he's already been given by God. She's not going to come and rule over him. We see a similar thought from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. So we see very clearly that this being formed first is important in the Bible. He has the right of the firstborn. Not because there's something in him better than the woman. As a matter of fact, many ways my wife is a better person than I am. Understands things better than I do and can be great. But God creates roles not based on competency, but because that's the way he's ordained it. Let's keep reading. It says in verse 18 that then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. 
I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to the livestock, to the birds of heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, he closed it up, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to man. God created the woman because the man was incapable of fulfilling God's plans on his own. He was alone and she will complete him. Listen, in ways that are both necessary and beautiful. They will have children together and fill the earth. They will be good at different activities. They will function as a couple in the way they couldn't alone. And also it's clear that she's not created to rule him again, but to help him. Did you know that wedding ceremonies actually copy this story? Just think with me. The wedding story. Here's the man standing at the front at the altar. And all of a sudden, the music goes off. The doors open in the back. And here comes the woman with her father at his side. This is a traditional Christian wedding. It's actually a copy of Genesis chapter 2. And as the man stands alone at the front and the father representing her authority figure, he's been the one who's cared for her, the one who was responsible for her all of her life. As he carries her on his arm, he knows that his authority is about to end when he gets to the man in front. Now he's giving her away. Giving her to another man who's charged with taking care of her, loving her. This is the symbolism behind marriage. Isn't it beautiful? Who sees a wedding and says, oh, that's so gross. That's such authoritarianism. This is exactly what God is intending. Beauty. Goodness. This is what weddings are supposed to convey. The woman was created for the man and from the man. She will be a helper fit for him. Listen, like pieces of a puzzle. Pieces in a puzzle are different. They fit together. They complement each other. She was made for him. Literally made for him. And it's very important that especially in marriage and in the church, we understand what this means. Adam came from the ground and Adam works the ground. Eve comes out of Adam and her role is to help Adam. I believe last week's sermon gave us some great principles of how these things work out in marriage. I won't really spend a lot of time. That's not really a lot of what this is talking about here. But if you haven't listened to last week's sermon given by Pastor Steve Fuller, you really should. It was fantastic on this topic. But I have one thing I would like to apply to marriages in the room today. So if you're in marriage, take a second, pay attention, get into the conversation with me for just a second. Here's what I want to ask you. How often do you and your spouse get into disagreements? Please don't answer that out loud right now in the middle of the service. How much conflict is there with your spouse because you are different from them? You ever thought of that phrase, fit for him, the Bible says? 
The idea is this, that the man is one thing and the woman is another, and they are very different. If they were the same, they wouldn't fit together. But they're different. And as that difference passes through a sinful nature, it comes out in a lot of conflict. But I want you to stop for a second and just think with me. Would you be better off if your wife were the same as you? Would you better be better off if your husband were the same? Would you grow spiritually if everything you always agreed on? Would you be good parents if you always parented exactly in the same way? Don't you see the brilliance behind God? You are different from your spouse, and that is not an accident. It's by design so that you can accomplish together what would be difficult for you to do alone. And this is the beauty of God's plan. Would you do something for me today? If you're married, I want you, as you go out of this place today and you're eating or you're spending time, and I want you to look across at your spouse and I want you to tell them one thing about them that is different from you that you appreciate. We've got to start seeing things the way God intended them and stop using our differences as just fighting talk all the time, but appreciate each other for the way God has made each one of us. We see that God is ultimately, uh, in God's eyes, man is ultimately responsible. The man is. God makes him that. After they sin, it's Adam that God wants to have a conversation with first. Paul says in the New Testament that sin entered through one man. He blames Adam. God assigned him to protect and he did not lead. God gave him a wife and he did nothing when she was tempted. In marriage and in the church, hear me, God will hold male leadership accountable for what they do. It's a very clear message coming from the text. And I hope we take this in seriousness. Let me say a word of encouragement as I talk about this responsibility, which is clear from Genesis chapter 2. But if you're in this room and you say to yourself, you know, I'm not as smart as my wife is. I have a disability. My wife makes more money than I do. She has a job while maybe I'm unemployed. In all of those things, that does not take away the fact that you are still a leader. You can't control the circumstances around you, but you do not have God's permission to be lazy, to be passive, and to sit back and let everything else that happens around you be done without you. You are charged and you will be held responsible, men. And if that means your wife goes to work because you can't find a job, then you better help her. That is the, what we're intending to do. We lay our life down for our wife. And if that means our pride, we lay that also down. We can't control everything in life. But I say that to encourage many of you. Today's world is not always easier. Before you stick your finger out and talk bad about someone else's marriage, be sure to make sure you're leading in your own. Don't buy into cultural stereotypes, no matter which culture you come from. Be humble. Listen to your wife and wives. Learn that to be a helper does not mean you're less of a human being. 
God is many times called our helper in the Bible. We see in verse 23 that Adam reacts to Eve. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's actually poetry. Sort of like a Hebrew rap song, you know? He can't help but react to what he sees. He's in love. He's struck by Eve. And he does two things. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's like me. And then he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's overjoyed and he even names his wife. Did you know my wife before she was married was Georgina Castro? But after she got married, do you know her name now is Georgina Jenkins? It's very common in my culture that we take the woman takes the husband's name. It's based back in these ideas in Genesis that she's coming under the authority of the man. In many cultures, this is done the same. Naming has meaning to it. God in Genesis 1 is going to name different parts of the creation, showing that while the Israelites lived in a world that worshipped the sun and the moon, he's out naming them. He controls them. He's God over these things. In a little bit, Adam is going to be naming the animals. And remember, we've already seen God said, you are to have dominion over that area. And here in Genesis chapter 2, and again at the end of Genesis chapter 3, Adam names Eve. And you can't miss the significance of the pattern and the repeated structure. Showing, again, it's his responsibility. She's under his authority. We see the text in in chapter 2 verse 24 with this statement by Moses. This is not part of the original story. This is like a commentary on it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this comment by Moses on this is, is, is a comment on the story, not, not a part of the story. Moses is saying that this pattern for marriage should be used in his time. Jesus looks at it and he says, you know, this pattern for marriage should be used in our time. This is a pattern for the way things work. Brothers and sisters who are married, this is not only a story from Genesis 1 or 2. This is a pattern for all marriages from all cultures at all times. Men and women, in summary, are equal before God while different in their roles. That's what creation teaches about men and women. We come to the last question today. Can we trust this divine design? We live in an age that does not trust us. So I'm going to tell you a few details, and I hope you understand where I'm going with this. Have any of you ever heard of body integrity identity disorder? Body integrity identity disorder describes an extremely rare phenomenon of persons who desire the amputation of one of their healthy limbs. Did you just hear what I said? They're really convinced that I would be better off without my right hand, so they want to amputate it. I would be better off without my right leg, so they want to amputate it. There are actually chat rooms that they've been caught and shut down on the internet where people like this gather together and they talk about how to trick the doctor into cutting off one of their limbs. 
Now, could you imagine if one of these people came to me and they said to me, Pastor Wiley, would it be good? You think I should? I really just don't feel like this right arm should be there. Would it be okay for me to cut this off? What would you think if I said to them, you know, follow your heart. Just go after your feelings. It'd be a pretty bad response, wouldn't it? My wife had a close friend that actually worked in ministry with her that struggled with anorexia. She had two children. In anorexia, you actually will starve yourself. And she would say again and again, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat. While she weighed nothing. She died in a hospital, starving herself to death in front of her two children as they begged her to eat. She genuinely had the feeling that she was fat. Let me say something to you today from the bottom of my heart with all humility. Let the church hear this. Let anyone who wants to hear it, hear it. If you are a man and you think you're really a woman trapped inside a man's body, or if you're a woman and you think you're a man, there's a man trapped inside you, let me tell you something. Do not trust your feelings. Trust your creator. If you are here in this room and you struggle with same-sex attraction, can I say something to you? Do not trust your desires. Trust your Creator. You may be convinced and feel with all of your heart. But let me tell you, our heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately wicked. That's what the Bible says about our hearts. So as Christ calls to us, He calls to us today to trust Him, to trust He has our best in mind with creation, with our family as a single, as a married person, with the gender, biological gender we're assigned with. God has given us trust. Even when your feelings aren't in line with that, Believe your creator. You know, the story of Charles Blunden crossing on his tightrope has a lot of parallels to what Jesus Christ did. And I really feel like Christ is calling to his people. He's calling to us to trust and to get in the wheelbarrow. I know it looks dangerous to follow Jesus in a culture that hates what I just said. But we have to trust, to trust that he has our best in mind, even if it is risky. You know, Charles Blunden is famous for a lot of things like crossing. He was a tightrope walker, right? But he only crossed from one side of the United States to Canada. Did you know Jesus Christ came from heaven? down to earth. No one can do that. He did that to bring salvation. Do you know Charles Blunden? He, he was really good at making money off of what he did, but Jesus didn't come to make money. He came to save sinners. And I say that contrary to anyone who wants to make money off of the gospel. 
You know, Charles Blondin was great at doing entertaining shows that could get the crowd cheering for him. Jesus got spit, beat, mocked, and had a crowd shout, crucify him, crucify him for you and for me. You know, Charles Blunden was the only person who could carry a person in a wheelbarrow over a tightrope. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can carry you back to the place he came from. He is the way to God and the truth and the life. And no man will come to the Father unless they get in that wheelbarrow and trust Christ to carry them there. There's no hope beyond that. What is my hope in life and death other than Jesus Christ? Charles Blondin offered his volunteers nothing in return for their risk. But Jesus offers us abundant life now and eternal life forever with him. If you're here today and you don't know this Jesus, I welcome you to trust in him, not just know about him, but trust in him. He can take your sin that are red as crimson and he can make them white as snow. Wipe them out by the power of his blood. Died on a cross to save all those who would trust in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to share your word. I thank you for, God, the truths that we hear here, the things that we learn. I just pray for your people. Uh, that they would be strong, that they would act with bravery in front of a world that doesn't agree with you. I just pray, God, for humility and grace as we help those who are suffering and struggling. Marriages are struggling. I pray for your grace. For the marriages in this room and even listening, God, I just pray for grace. It's so hard to be married. Would you help your people? Help us to be all that you have for us. Pray for the singles in this room. For whatever reason that they are single, God, would you help them to be witness and a light, to be literally your image to people. Help us to all fulfill what we were created to and to trust in our creator. In Jesus' name, amen.